Dear Quest community, welcome to this special series that we're doing with the leaders of the RIA aggregator and integrators. So these are the firms in the registered investment advisory industry that are doing what is now 91% of the deals, which are mainly these private equity funded, larger RIAs that are looking to buy up and are buying up and doing many, many deals in the space. Other RIA firms, whether they're independent or sometimes from IBD platforms or even doing some deals with wirehouse uh, advisors. Um, so we are fortunate enough to have some of the, the leading firms in the industry doing these deals, and we have them on uh, in this special series so that people who are interested, right, advisors in the industry who are potentially interested in selling their firms can understand the different models out there. Because one of the benefits of the uh, evolution and the maturation of the RA space has been that there are more aggregators and integrators, there's more funding for these, there's more private equity. Uh, but as that happens, there also is more confusion as to all these different options out there. What are the different models? Why is one better than the other? What is the best fit for me? So the purpose of this series is to give the opportunity for each of these amazing firms to talk about their different models, talk about who they're looking to target, who they attract, and have you be in a better position as a potential seller to understand your options. And for those of you who are not in the RA space, you know, I would listen anyway. It's also a fascinating look at how the industry is evolved and how an industry matures and frankly, what the different acquisition models are that could be applied even in other industries. So check out all the videos in this special series on the RIA aggregator and integrators. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out of the box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind the scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions, to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. Jim Dixon is the founder and chief executive officer of nationally recognized wealth management firm Sanctuary Wealth and serves on the board of directors. He's the visionary behind the creation, development, and launch of this innovative and disruptive platform of partnered independence designed to provide elite advisors with all the services and resources needed to serve their clients fully and objectively. Previously, Jim spent 20 years building and leading strategy and building leaders as senior executive at Ernst & Young and Merrill Lynch. He is an entrepreneur at his core, I love that, and believes that servant leadership is how you build an unstoppable culture of growth and excellence Family is his why. Jim, welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Thanks, Corey. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Jim, I mean, there's so much I want to talk about in terms of Sanctuary's model and the particular approach and how it differs from other firms out there. But before I get there, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be and, and what? And Because my guess is running a, a firm like Sanctuary wasn't it. Probably even, you know, I don't know, even your career at the wirehouses, my guess is at that age, wasn't it? But you, you tell me, what did you want to be? I wanted to be a baseball kid. 
baseball coach, Corey. That, that's what I wanted to do. I, I grew up, I was a very awesome household, but my parents were both teachers. My dad was an athletic director. And so I was around a, a ball or a field my entire life. And so I thought, in fact, I still want to do that, by the way. One, <laughs> one day when I retire from sanctuary, I'm going to be that old guy that's coaching the local high school team, right? And uh, I, I don't know, it's, it's just a dream of mine to, to do that. I, I was able to coach my boys and there the last few years they play in college now, but that's it. I'd be a baseball coach. It's very interesting because so many, so many of us kids that grow up wanted to be in sports, baseball, whatever it was, but it wasn't, usually wasn't a coach. It was a player at that, at that point, right? I think I knew my limitations. <laughs> <laughs> you, you were self-aware way earlier than most of us, apparently. <laughs> All right. And one, one other question, uh, looking back before we jump in, what was your first deal of any type? It could be something small when you were a kid or early in your career, anything that come, you know, that remind you of a, of a deal. I, I think my first deal was I had a lawn mowing business as a young teenager. And it was, it was, I remember this like yesterday, it was another, maybe that's why I'm an aggregator, who knows, but <laughs> another kid that was a little younger in the neighborhood, I, I convinced him that, that, that he should use the push mower and do the trimming and I would do the riding and we could get through a lot more lawns, but, but I still made, I, I still made a little bit off of every one of those <laughs> lawns that we did more of. And so I guess even back to the, to the younger days, Corey, I was an aggregator. Back, back in Alexandria, Indiana, mowing yards. That, that was my first deal, probably, I don't know, 12, 13 years old. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Listen, as we were talking on the pre-call, the great thing about this industry that it continues to mature and evolve, including having phenomenal aggregator and integrator options out there uh, for folks who want to exit, partner, join, evolve. And, and that's been great. And it's something that wasn't around I mean, even certainly 10 years ago at the level it is, even five years ago at the level it is. But that's also raised a lot of questions for people about the different models and things like that. So talk, let's talk about Sanctuary's model. One of the things that I've been talking about with the other guests that we've done so far is this conversation of aggregator versus integrator. And we all know that that's a somewhat artificial conversation because right. there are aspects of each that people have, but, but some are more on the spectrum of one direction or another. And there's a value proposition of each of them that appeals to different advisors. Talk to us a little bit where Sanctuary falls on that scale. We're clearly on the left. So we're, we're an aggregator. We believe in autonomy. And so not right for every purchaser, but, but ever since I started the front core, I always thought I'm going to acquire something. Why do I want to change what's been so successful, right? Or when I'm going to bring something onto the platform. So we allow people to control the client experience and the investment experience. And obviously within the purviews of, of very good and very solid compliance lines, but we believe that those closest to the client make those best decisions. Yeah. And that's, that's certainly, I mean, we, we've had a couple of folks on already on episodes we released that, you know, are much more on, if you're right. saying the, are on the right side, if you say you know, that the, that the aggregate is the left side being much more integrators. And so let's, let's, let's break that down a little bit. Let's talk about, because on that spectrum there, what you mentioned in terms of the independence of handling their clients and investment decisions, what about things like branding, ADV, separate entity, you know, g give us the spectrum of what, yeah, so what the model every, is. Yeah, I would love to. Everybody at Sanctuary sits on our corporate ADV. So that makes it really easy. They want to, they want to grow. They want to spend time with clients. They don't want to spend time dealing with auditors and regulators. And so we, you know, everybody sits on our, our ADV, but they have their own brand, right? Yeah. And so now at times they'll, it'll be, it'll say powered by Sanctuary, but but we kind of cover the entire spectrum for you because we break a lot of firms away from the wirehouses and then later we'll take a stake in them. Sometimes we won't, but as a platform, we really are there to help people grow and help people spend time where they want to do it, which is really on their clients. And so corporate ADV is a must, but outside of that, the autonomy really is for them to build their own client experience with their own brand. Great. And listen, it, but for the listeners and the, the audience, it really shows you folks that 
there's that it usually is a spectrum. I mean, there, don't get me wrong. There are models out there that, well, you have your own ADV, right? That's, right. that's even, but here you have one aspect of what we've considered more integrated, which is the same ADV, but everything else really on Sanctuary's right. platform in terms of separate brand, in, including separate branding is really much more of the aggregated model. And so, yeah, let's talk about who that attracts. I mean, you mentioned you do a lot of the wirehouses and it's interesting because at least a couple of the more integrator models that we talked about, they've talked about attracting more from the independent space and maybe the IBD space. But I know there's a couple of them that haven't done much or anything on the on the wirehouse side. So, so talk about who your model was attractive to and who it's not. And frankly, I think both of those things are great, right? Because yeah. I, and I say that even to my smaller clients who are at the level below the PE funded aggregators to say, listen, you want to create a crib value proposition and model. And what's as important as who opts into that, it's who opts out because then you don't waste time on the people who aren't your right fit. Yeah. Man, and we learned that, right? You build something, you learn, right? There's probably a few scars here that you can see from that. <laughs> but yeah. Listen, I spent 20 plus years at a very senior role at Merrill Lynch. So that's what I knew. I understood the wirehouse model. And candidly, when I left Merrill Lynch to, to explore something new in 2016, I, I studied where I thought was a hole, right? Because I, I felt like there was all these people in the wires that were miserable, frustrated, that were looking for a home and they wanted to be independent, but they didn't want to do all the work to build the firm to be independent. And so I thought if we could build this platform, they could plug into that. And so for the first three years, that's what we did. And we were fortunate enough to build about 20 billion in assets, just breaking people away, setting them up. And then yep. what happened is a lot of people that were over in the independent space, which was new for us, and we were getting to know, started to say, wow, I really like what you built, right? And so now I sort of view these two on-ramps. We have the breakaways, that, that we'll always do and we're very good at, but we also have a lot of independent firms that are knocking on our door and saying, hey, listen, what you've built is a lot more efficient and, and, and can we plug into that? Can we use your OCIO solution? Can we use these things? And so it's been great. It's an extra growth channel, but it still has to be for us about the right culture. And that's really about somebody that's a CFP that's doing primary fiduciary business. We have a broker dealer as that use it to, to help be a tool in the toolbox to solve solutions for clients. But we're really looking for that fee-based financial planner who wants to grow. And now we have 82 partner firms that are part of that. We don't really care where they come from. Great teams from the wirehouse, great independent firms. We just want them to come join the family. So let's talk about the model. You, you sort of, you mentioned that you take it winning some and not others. So talk about the range of ways that whether it's independent firms, whether it's wirehouse teams can affiliate or, or partner with become part of Sanctuary. So the first thing is they have to join our ADV, right? That, that's the only non-negotiable. And so yep. if they join our ADV, they can join and, and, and really pay, pay, pay a service fee to be a part of our platform. Or in what's happening more and more, and the reason we've raised capital in recent years is not only do they want to join the platform, for it, but they want us to take a stake in them. And so yeah. one thing that's maybe a little different about Sanctuary, we love to take 20 and 30% stakes in these business, right? So we bring them onto the platform. That's why we call it partnered independence, because we're truly partnered. We own some of them. A lot of times they'll take our stock and own some of us and take advantage of how fast we're growing and the capital that we have. And then a lot of times we've gotten to do deals together. When I look at this marketplace, the one thing that I think is changing exponentially faster are these sub acquisitions, right? Yes. Where the yes. partner firms of these firms are doing deals. And when I think about it, I think it's brilliant because, and I give focus credit, they were probably the first to get it started. And it's like, you have a, you have a huge sales force. You've got 82 partner firms out there doing business with people they know in their own communities. It's a lot quicker to close. Sometimes it's, it's, it's not as much of an auction, if you will, in that process. And it just, it's just an easier way sometimes to play in the M&A space. And so I think when I look in our future, I see a lot of that sub-acquisition work for those firms that, that we're partnered with. Yeah, it's interesting you said that because obviously focus came to mind for, for, for me as well with that. And we did some early deals with them. 
And I think the firms that are happiest on, on, on a platform like that are the ones that have really taken advantage of that sub-acquisition, those opportunities. And, and they have examples, as, as I know you guys are starting to as well, obviously you're younger, um, but, but, you know, of, of firms that have really, you know, that's been a very significant growth strategy for them on that kind of platform. It just makes sense. I was in this morning, Phone Rings, it's one of our partner firms in, in Ohio and, hey, we've got a deal. They're ready to, they're ready to do it. And, and something that would have maybe taken us six or eight months is now going to take us one or two months because those two principals have already come together and figured out that they trust each other and they like each other. And they're just looking for the capital and the platform, right? And so it, it just, I think you're going to see more and more of that. And, and I think it's something that so we're pretty excited about. That's great. So in terms of the, I mean, it sounds like this is a range of a minority equity stakes that you're taking in your, you know, your various partners and also maybe a range of equity stakes that they take or not take in, in, in sanctuary as a, as a whole in your deals, right? Yeah. One of the things we've kind of prided ourselves is in, in, in maybe somebody, some investment banker somewhere say, this isn't very smart, but no two deals are really the same. We try to meet people where they are and sit down with them and say, what are you trying to accomplish? Right. And our partner firms tend to be, have a little longer runway, a little younger in the business. And we do that intentionally because we really want to have two things. We want to have partners that have a growth mindset and have a clean compliance record who want to grow. And we think about, I don't know, I, I keep hearing different numbers, but, but, but one out of every four or five advisors is going to retire in the next few years. We just felt like if we could build this nationwide network, we could really attack that market much more efficiently and effectively. And so that's what we did for the first three or four years of Sanctuary was to build out this, this platform and this group of people that as people were ready to retire, they would look into our network and say, that's somebody I'd like to work with. And that's somebody I'd like to serve my clients. And we're starting to see the fruits of that labor start to happen. And so it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, this bear market, right? Um, I think it's sort of maybe taking some folks and saying, okay, this isn't quite as much fun anymore. A little more volatility, a little harder conversations. And so yeah. we're starting to see people ask me all the time, what do you think? What's your crystal ball in M&A? And I think it's going to get more and more and more because you've got this pent up demand from these baby boomers that are going to retire. And as they retire, they're looking for homes. And of that, of that one out of four, I bet half of those don't have a transition plan. And so pretty active spot for us to help them sort of plan through that. Yeah. And it's, and it's interesting because I've had the benefit of, although the RA space, well, the management space is our biggest single sector by far, I and mean, it's the majority of our business. We do, we have clients in, 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 in all kinds of other industries, which is great because I mean, first of all, our wealth management clients get to refer their clients to us, which is very, very good for business. But yeah. but from a perspective point of view, I've seen other I've been doing this for thirty five years. I've seen other industries. I've seen I I I I see the maturation journey of the independent RIA space, and I've seen this before, right? I mean, I was doing roll ups in the ophthalmology, you know, uh, space back in the day. I've done, you know, I can pick a bunch of industries, but I mean, we did a, a bunch in, in in on the tech side and like backup computing and that kind of stuff. So the point is that there's a, um, you know, every industry is different in a lot of ways, but also there's a, there's a similarity to the evolution of what happens in maturing industries when money comes in and what deals start getting done and things like that. And as I've said on other episodes of the special series, I think we're in the second or third in, inning of this RA maturation. So the long-term trends, oh, and this is the other thing, the fact that I've also mentioned this, but the fact that we still have a robust breakaway movement yeah. so that. The industry is the industry is consolidating, but it's not like, you know, it, it, meaning that there's as much inflow coming in as, you know, or more actually is what the stats show than there is in terms of what's got being gobbled up in consolidation. So you've got you got this inflow. So you got this long runway. And I think you're absolutely right. I want to I want to drill into a couple of things you said. One is this conversation of the younger advisors with, with runway. I mean, frankly, listen, the industry's done a 
poor job, really poor. And it's hard for me to understand in so many ways because I, I'll be honest with you, listen, I'm very, very happy with my career. I've, I've, I've developed a great law firm. I do very well. I got nothing to complain about. But I look at the I look at the industry. I'm like, hey, we're both in service business where we provide high-touch, customized <laughs> service to, to, to sophisticated people. And when you guys, let's see, recurring revenue, paid in advance, <laughs> pulled out of his account automatically. I, I mean, that's the dream of any kind of high-end service business. And also beyond the monetary benefits and, and the ease in that way, I'm not saying the business is easy, no business is easy, but you know, it's also I mean, our advisors have great relationships with their clients. They build close, close relationships similar to what what I do, but but it's it's frankly a better business model. So yeah, like, why are people not going into this space? <laughs> I, I think about that a lot. I, I think it goes back to the financial crisis, right? There for a while to be a financial advisor, to be anything financial was a bad thing. And then and about the time I started to heal, it felt like here came the robos, right? Humans will never survive. The robos will win. Listen, <laughs> this business is great advisors have great empathy, right? And that's in, as do great lawyers, by the way, that, that, that's what yeah. makes the difference. And so, look, I, I don't, I'm agree with you. I, I think it's in the first or second inning and I think it's the greatest business in the world. And so it's, it's, but I, I, I felt like when we started this thing four years ago, if we could really build a bench of younger advisors with the longer runway who were diverse. We were going to be in a really good place to, to, to inherit a lot of those assets. And, and so it's fun to see that play out a little bit, but I agree. This is the best business in the world. And, and I, I'm the number one cheerleader. I, I just think it's amazing. Love it. Love it. So let's talk about particularly because with the others that I've recorded on this series so far, because the models were different and, and because maybe because of that and or other reasons, they were less focused on the warehouse space. I want to dig into that a little bit. I mean, we do a lot of transitions out of warehouses, but a lot of them are to full independence where they're opening their own yeah. firms. And, the, and then and then some of them, including, you know, we've done, we've worked with you guys, you know, are, are, are joining existing platforms. Um, what's the different value proposition that appeals to warehouse advisors versus, and of course you have the benefit of doing both. And I'm sure it's, it's different generally for independent advisors versus warehouse advisors. So let's dig into the warehouse advisor. Who's that advisor who... I mean, we all know that there's a lot they're running from, right? The compliance, the headache, the bad managers, the comp changes, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. And you can delve into that a little bit. But then there's the next decision, right? If, they, if they're already running from, what are they running towards? And, and why do they choose one option, opening their own firm versus the various options like, like Sanctuary? Well, I, I think first of all, let, let, let's let's start with 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 income because nobody likes to start there, but it but it but it kind of does, right? I think the economics are better, and 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 so let's just get that off the table and 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 say that that's that's better. And I think yep. what 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 I see more and more is people want freedom, flexibility, and control, and 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 so as they think about their future, they 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 just they want to be in control and they want to control that experience. And and I think the other thing that's happened is as the baby boomers. And the silent generation started to transition money to generation X into the millennials. There's a big change in the business and you better show up digitally. You better show up in a way online to yeah. meet clients. And, and by the way, even some of the baby boomers are starting to demand that, right? Right. The, the grandmothers in, in the audience are the best social media people because they got to keep track of their grandkids. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. They're, so, they're, they're the biggest know, demographic on Facebook these days by far, right? Yeah. And so when you look at the wirehouses, you look at some of the large institutions, you just can't do that, right? The only thing you can do, you can't even, for a long time, you couldn't even like a post on LinkedIn, right? And, and, and so as I think so many of them, they just realized that that, that wasn't where the future is. And, and the really smart ones that are growing 
also realize, look, I want to own an asset that's mine. I control it. And I want to monetize it in a tax efficient way of a capital gain. And I want to build something. Now, an awful lot of those people, Corey, they are unbelievable at bringing in new clients and they're unbelievable at serving clients. They don't want to build the compliance. They don't want to serve on the investment committee. They, they, they don't want to do the operations. They sure as heck don't know how to string together the technology stack and make sure it all works. They don't want to negotiate with the vendors. And so we just made the decision we could do all that. We could do it really well and we could do it with scale. And, and where we started four years ago to where we are now, I would argue that, that it's cheaper to be at a firm like Sanctuary than it is to pay for everything on your own and set up your own ADV. Now, some people would argue with that, but I feel strongly that we've got our costs now, whether it's billing and reporting, all those things you have to do. And, and what they were used to was an automated solution, right? And so what we say is, look, if you want to take care of your clients and you want to control their, their investment experience and, and, and their service experience, this is the right place. We'll take care of everything else. By the way, we'll build this unbelievable community of like-minded people that share best practices and ideas and everybody will grow faster. We just had our, our annual conference in Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago. We had all 82 of our partner firms there. It was the first time I've been to a conference in a long time where everybody was happy. Right. So I think that's a testament to um, the happiness the independents can bring because people are doing what they want to do. And so he said to me, it was interesting at the conference, I said, hey, are you just building an, another Merrill Lynch? And I said, no. And I said, the difference is, is it's not that people don't like the platforms of the wirehouses. They actually, they're good. They're, they're really good. But, but what they don't like is being told how to use them, right? And so we build a platform, but the difference in being independent is it's, it's not taxation without representation. You pick what you want to use and you pay for what you use. You don't pay for everything. And so, but there's nothing you can do in the independent sector today that you can't do at a wirehouse. And I'm not sure you could have said that five to seven years ago. It's just evolved so much that yep. the entire solution suite but now I can sit out with a client. I can say to them, hey, listen, you don't just have to look at the loan of the, the, the firm I'm at. I'm going to show you five or six different banks and we can pick the best one for you. And I think it's that true open architecture that's client-centric that's really driving it. But I think the wirehouses are an unbelievable, an unbelievable growth engine, right? And then, and then you really have a value proposition to teach them to be independent because they don't know, right? They don't know all the things that are different about being a business owner. They don't know some of the freedom and flexibility they can do providing tax services like Pat on your last show was talking about. There's just so many things that they're able to do. And, and all of a sudden, it's like they're a kid again. They're having fun. They're, they're enjoying the business. And so it's, it's been quite rewarding to see it happen. But, but for us, the wirehouses are a, a really good space. And I hope everybody stays away from them. So yeah, I almost right. hate to say that because it's just, we, we built 25 billion in five years and 95% of that's come from the wirehouses. And so, and I think we're early. I think there's a lot more of that to come. So I, I think it's a really good, really good model for us. I love it. I love it. All right. And just to follow a question on model, because obviously you don't want people to leave you. And from what I understand, the experience of sanctuary is that you don't have a, a lot of right. attrition at all. You know, so good. People yeah. are very happy. But in terms of model, I mean, can people come and go? Are they locked they in? Can. Because listen, on, on some of the integrated models, right? They're either buying all the equities and there's restricted covenants, not solicits, non competes, that kind of stuff. So what is your model around, around? It's a little bit scary, brother. We are exposed every day, meaning that if you want to leave, you can leave. And we want it that way. And in the earlier intro, you talked a little bit about servant leadership, but I, I think if we, if we do right by our advisors, where we drive their costs down, we provide a growth platform and we're just good people, try to keep a family environment, then we're going to do just fine on that. Now, a few of them, Corey, we own 20% on, but they can sell 30% on, they can sell that stake too, right? It's a little harder to unpack if, if we own a little bit of each other, but of for, for, for a lot of our partners, that's the true, I think, benefit. You're, 
There's some people out there that talk about full independence and they want you to sign a five-year contract. At Sanctuary, our contract's every day. We come to work every day and we, we better do a good job or, or we're going to have that, that exposure. But um, like you said, it's, 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 been, it's been fantastic. We haven't had that attrition and I don't think we will as long as we yeah. keep that servant mindset. Yeah, listen, I, I, lo- I love that fundamental commitment to servant mentality. It's where I come from in my business. So I believe in it. So listen, one of the things that the one reason I'm doing this special series is, is, is to be able to highlight some of the really great firms out there. And, and, and it's a little selfish because I represent a lot of the, the, the sellers and, and, and the warehouse teams, whatever that are transferring into these models. And so I want them to have a better understanding of their options. And, and like we said, there, there are people who will be drawn to each. Right. But in terms of from your point of view or from your investor's point of view, and I, I do want to get into your funding. The, so the argument, so, all right, everything sounds great. Wait, as an advisor, I can come, I can go if I'm unhappy. I get all this independence. I, I, I have all this stuff taken away from me. I can focus what I, I can have my own brand. Uh, I think some folks who are more in the integrated model might make an argument that in terms of building enterprise value and the ability to monetize the, the, the value at, in your case, the sanctuary level, right? Which for the people who've invested into sanctuary in terms of advisors makes a difference. They might argue that they can rebuild higher enterprise value because of their integrated model and their one platform and their one, yeah. one way of doing things, et cetera. So, and the fact that, that people can't come and go as, as freely. Talk to us about that, the enterprise value side for you. And you can tie it into, obviously, you've got an outside investment. So the outside investors mm-hmm. believe that you guys are going to be successful enough for, for them to get the kind of returns yeah. they want. So talk about that conversation about enterprise value and the different models. Yeah, you know, look, we think about it all the time. Our investors think about it all the time. So it's not a, it's not an unusual conversation. I think that one thought that I would just share is that, like, I, I think there's a little danger to some of the integrator models personally because they lack diversification. If that one investment strategy goes bad or that one business model goes bad, there's nothing to do. Whereas I think one of the things that that people love about our business is the diversity of having 82 different partner firms that have different investment models and different service models. It, it just gives you that, that same pre cash flow because they're fiduciary fee-based business, but yet much greater diversification. The, the, the question comes and the smart question is, well, you know, if it's a service platform versus an ownership, what does that do on the valuation? And what, what we've discovered and what we believe is if we own 20 to 30% of our most funds, we get valued the exact same way as an integrator does who owns 80, 90, or hundred percent. The difference is, is that I think, especially for our advisors who tend to have a little bit longer runway. I want them to have more skin in the game. I want us to both be partners. And if yeah. I don't have to worry about them hustling to bring in the next client. I don't have to worry about them really providing best, quote unquote, not being retired on active duty if they still have 70% of the risk, right? And so our model is to get to that 20 or 30%. Oftentimes we can buy the little lower multiple because it is a minority stake versus a majority stake. But when you look at the exits and I have investment bankers calling me every day, what's your next step? Because it's such a capital intensive business, right? And they all say the same thing, that, that they think that valuation of us in a minority stake is very similar, not meaningfully different at all to that. So time will tell, right? The, the, the dollars are always in the details, but it's been our belief that we don't have to have that full majority stake to, to be valued the same. If we've got that minority stake and we've got a clear track record, which we do, people sticking around and saying that that, that same 15, 60, whatever that multiple is, is still going to be there for us as long as we continue to grow and, and, and sort of take those minority stakes with those partners. Yeah. And so let's talk about your capital partners, because obviously 
As, as, as I mentioned, anybody knows the industry. I mean, it's only been, it's very recently since there's really been any significant private equity money looking at this space. Yeah. So you couldn't, I mean, you could barely find lending capital a dozen years ago. Forget, forget the equity capital, private equity capital. You know, and also it, it is um, of interest. I, I think I've said this, I know you've listened to a couple of the prior episodes that have aired already. I've said this on couple of them. I always advise my client in those cases where they are taking equity in their in their partner, in their buyer, that they should be looking at that as a separate investment decision and evaluating it. And part of that evaluation is where in the capital raising journey is that firm. So talk to us about your private equity partners and where you are on that journey. Yeah. So Corey, we've been busy in the last two years. We've done two separate transactions and raised about $230, $250 million. So we we did a $50 million first round with Asmin, which is a publicly traded firm in Italy. And they've been fantastic. They're very long-term thinkers. They know the business well. They've done the same thing in Australia. So they knew exactly what they were getting into and they've been tremendous partners. And, and, And then about July of last year, we, we needed, we needed more capital. It's going well. It was a great problem to have, but the growth that we were having and the opportunities we were having, we need more capital. And so we decided to do a convertible debt feature. Honestly, it was one of those those things where you could see some dark clouds starting to come in the markets maybe a little yeah. bit. And, yeah. and, and and we thought, you're never sure, but you think interest rates may go up. And so we locked that in is what we did. And at the time, somebody kind of, a few people maybe chuckled and said, I think you're think you're too early or I think your your interest rate's a little high. And now I think they're going, I wish I had that, right? And so <laughs> we got lucky, I guess, Corey, on that and got that right. But Kenny Lewis, which is a private credit firm out of New York City, one of the best private credit managers in the world. And they, they really came in and they've got a different expertise, right? They're really good at, at deal making and they're really good, I think, honestly, at helping us institutionalize the business and obviously invested in one of their funds. And so for us now, it's it's a matter of, of, of sort of, I think as Pat was saying, when you bring in a professional investor like that, they sort of institutionalize you and they sort of polish you up a little bit. And so that's that process that we're going through. And it's been great. I feel like our our, our growth projections are there. The hard thing for me is I grew up a, a kid of two school teachers, right? So when you think about a hundred in, in Indiana, and so $170 million to me is like, oh my gosh, that's so much money, which is our last raise. But man, this is a capital intensive business and you really put that capital to work quickly. And so it's interesting. I think you're going to see more and more capital come into the space. I think it's like the, it's like the tech space. They love the SaaS model, but, but, it, but maybe without some of the cost of acquisition. And so it, it's interesting. If you want to compete now on most bank deals and you don't have institutional capital, you're just not going to, you might not even get by to the table. And if you do, you're not going to win. Uh, it's almost a prerequisite. And so, and it's amazing to me in three years, how quick that has changed. And and, and I think it's only going to get stronger. I think you're going to see now what I do think you're going to see, Corey, and I'm interested in your opinion is I think you're going to start to see the consolidation of the consolidators and the aggregators and the integrators. I think you're going to see them start to come together. Maybe they have corresponding strengths or complementary strengths. And I think that's the next step, but I think more and more and more and more and more money is coming into this space. Cause I agree with you. It's the second inning. No question. I, and I agree with what you just said. I mean, I, I don't know when that timing will come on the consolidation of the aggregators or the consolidators, but it's inevitable if you, again, if you study any other the pattern of, of, of maturation and, and in other industries, that's, that's, that's what happens. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreykupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreykupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. 
I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So let's talk about now what 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 is the future? All right, so you're raising this capital. You've you've had great great growth in your four plus years that you've been around. You've things to be working though people aren't leaving. What's the what's the vision for the future in terms of? I mean, some of these models are more geared towards um, folks financial and public, right? Other firms are setting up for acquisition. Other firms I, I interviewed, and I, I believe it will uh, air before yours, but I interviewed Claire O'Keefe at Cerity. They're, they're a hundred year partnership model, right? Yeah. That's, that, that's, their, that's their whole thing. Where, where is Sanctuary in terms of that future vision on what, uh, what's going to happen in terms of exit or lack thereof? Or, yeah. yeah. Great, great question. I, I think that our first focus is $100, $100 billion, right? That, that's what we talk about all the time, $100 billion firm. And listen, we throw off great cash flow. This is a great cash flowing business. And so if, if I'm not certainly have a lot of respect for Sarity, if we, if we, if we clip that coupon for a hundred years, that would be a wonderful thing. But I, I think, I think about it, the, the idea of going public is attractive to us because the ability to attract public capital and use public capital, it, it just is probably a better fit for this model. The challenges, and I think we all know this, is right now the multiples and the valuation in, in the in the private markets is a little more frothy than what it is in the public markets. And right. so I, I think that my guess is, is that will change. It's a cycle. It, it, it comes and goes. And so I think when we think about if we had it our way, probably be to be patient, continue to grow this thing with private capital until public markets ripened and, and sort of valued things similar to the, to the private markets and then use that public capital. And the nice thing about that for us is if you think about our model, our partner firms, in a lot of cases, own 80, 70, 80% of their firms. We own 20% of the firm. I think there's this opportunity to pour them together and go public and do better for everybody involved. And so I think that's why that public opportunity is attractive to us if the, if the market conditions were right. But we're patient, grew up on a farm. So I understand patience and we'll just, we'll just play this thing out and continue to grow. And when the time's right, we'll take advantage of those opportunities. But I do feel like the time will be right in the future where we can consider the public markets and do it, do it with our partners, which I think is pretty exciting. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because, listen, we, we never know how time is going to align, but who knows? It could be perfect because frankly, I mean, as you said, you have a, you have a, a hundred billion dollar goal at least. And, and right, right now you'd probably, you're probably not, it's probably a little early in, in terms of size and timing and whatever yeah. to go public anyway, even if the markets were ripe. So. Um, who knows? Maybe Good time for us. We're not ready yet. You're yeah, exactly. Right. So, so maybe that natural evolution, which I agree with you on that, that happens will, will happen at, at a perfect time when you, when you've done, done the growth privately that you want to do. And, um, one other thing, so talking about this minority investment model, one of the things I've talked to with the other leaders of the aggregators, integrators, consolidators, was this whole conversation of G2, right? And, and, and one of the objections I hear, at least concerns, right? Some of the, some of the more integrated firms get by it, but it's certainly a concern when you have a firm that has maybe an older person. I mean, I have, I have one now that is, is, is just testing the market. It's father, son, and a nephew, right? Are the main folks. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very nice business, reasons. right? Yeah. And, and, and son and nephew are, uh, father's like, wait a second. I, I, I didn't even, I, I wasn't even aware that I could get these kind of multiples and I'm, I'm at the end of my string here and it looks pretty good. Right. Uh, and, but, but the great thing about him is that, is that he's really very, very committed and concerned about his, his, his son and his nephew. And he says, but it's a very different analysis for these guys, right? Are they totally. taking, let's take all their chips off the table early and things like that. So listen, for anybody who knows this model, I, I think that's certainly one of the things that's potentially attractive to a model where they're not buying everything right now. Right. So you want to talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah, I call it the two putt, right? So what we'll do a lot of times is we'll, uh, we'll break somebody away and then they set up their LLC and they set up their basis. And then 13, 14, 15 months later, when it's a long-term capital gain, we'll do a transaction where we buy out 20, 30, 40% of that. The, 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 the next generation still has control. They still run the business. They're our partnership anyway, but we've monetized. We've monetized the, the, the senior advisor. A lot of times family members, not always, but a lot of times family members. We're doing that more and more and more. And we call it the two putt just because it, it, you're going in from the day you break away exactly what you're going to do. And it's super attractive. And when you look at that and you compare that to this, the stay in place models at the wirehouses, it's yep. such a better model because it's, it's capital gains instead of earned income. And yep. what happens, and I think it's been a huge growth for us, is these, these stay in place models that the wirehouses are all trying to do. Basically, what they do is they pay the patriarch, but now the next generation will never own anything. They're paying for the transaction, but they'll never own anything. It's, That's right. It's the most unbelievable model that people do that. And so <laughs> what we see is most people that really care about either the next, the next generation because they care about them or it's their family or whatever reason, they love these two-punt deals. And, and, and it is interesting, Corey, because like I, I would say to you, the, I, I think, and I hate to say this, I hope I'm wrong, by the way, but I think more and more and more people are going to get into the minority stakes because what, what I see, and, and maybe some of the audience won't will, will love this because they're more on the banking side, but a banker, he or she, they like to do full deals, right? Because obviously it's, it's economics are better for that. And so, but when I call financial advisors and when I speak to them, if I say to them, you want to sell your whole firm? They, a lot of times they're, no, got to go, bye, right? But if I say, hey, you think about taking some chips off the table? They're like, yeah. I do want to take some chips off the table. And for us, the way we structure that is we've got the next rider refusal if they want to take the next set of chips off the table, the next set of chips off the table. And so I think our, our model is very advisor centric. And it also is good because it allows the advisor to sort of walk away with the client over a period of time and do that transition appropriately versus one day just saying, hey, 100% is going to go to this, this integrator and we're out. So it's not for everybody. And certainly I don't think that it's a model that you're going to have to self-source because you're not going to see as many banker leads, if you will, coming out of it. But boy, we're having a lot of success. And we talk to an awful lot of people that, that do want to take some chips off the table. And so that minority stake for us. And honestly, it's also less competitive. But if I go into a full, a full acquisition deal, which we do a few of those, there's 15 or 20 people at the table sometimes. Sure. And there's those minority deals. There's three or four of us that want to do that. And we can, we can construct them with a little more flexibility. So I love the minority states. It's something that I'm really bullish on. So let me do one follow-up on that because what's interesting to me, and this is, the, this is a criticism that I've heard more, not of firms like yours, but of the minority investors, right? People yeah. who, are, right, who are just putting in minority investment, not, they don't have a platform, yeah. um, and which is, again, a relatively yeah. new thing in the industry. And I've, I've done those kind of deals for many, for many clients and for some of them at least, there's, and there's become a little bit of an undercurrent in the industry. Folks have been talking about the fact that, well, okay, if all you want is capital from those kind of folks, again, not a sanctuary yeah, model, right. from those kind of folks, um, then fine. But with some of them, the promised strategic benefits haven't played out. And yeah. also you are locked, you do lose a level of control. I mean, not on a day-to-day -day basis usually, but in terms of any big decisions, like any other kind of capital partner, I'm sure you don't have to talk yeah. about your deal, but I'm sure your, your capital partners yeah. with Shanksuary, there's no yeah. PE or lender or, you know, right. or family office or anybody else's, I mean, on the equity side, mainly who's coming in and not taking some sort of control rights or say rights in terms of you're selling the firm or taking on all the right. significant debt or some of these major decisions. And so at least on that end, I've, I've felt some pushback in the industry to say, hey, 
well, do I want to give up these control rights to only take a minority stake off? And, and, and am I not getting anything but money? And there's a lot of other ways to get money. So talk about a little bit about sanctuary, about that versus the sanctuary model. Yeah, I think, look, if all you're wanting to do is, is money, sanctuary is not the right place for you, right? If you want to be part of a network and a community and a platform that you can plug into and provide better client service and maybe in a lot of cases outsource some of the things that you don't want to do anymore, right? Then, then it's probably going to be a better feature. But what's so interesting, I think a lot of times for me over the last two years is the amount of times that we have a partner take a minority stake and they basically are like, listen, I don't know what I want to do permanently, but I'm going to come into your network. I'm going to develop relationships with other partner firms and I'm going to find the one that I want to sell out to at the end. Because remember at Sanctuary, we don't manage any money. We don't serve any clients. We provide a platform. And so how, what, what's almost awesome for me, by the way, but, but what's amazing to me is how many mergers and acquisitions are happening within our network where these firms are stacking up and, and growing faster because of that. And so an awful lot of people are, are saying, I do want to take a little risk off the table. I am at that point in my life. I don't want to get out, but I'd like to build relationships and look around and you'll be my partner to help sort of find the right way to exit this business because I love my clients. They mean the world to me and I'm not just going to throw them to somewhere. I, I want to do it in a thoughtful way. And so I think it's more about that thoughtful way of how you transition the other 80% of the business than it is that first 20%. For the right firms, at least for Sanctuary, those are the ones we're looking for. Right. So Jim, the last place I want to go in this interview before we get to my final two questions is about what we see in the industry. I mean, we but we both already acknowledged, I think I said second and third inning. I think you said first to second inning, so maybe it's even earlier than I think. But so we've acknowledged that, but let's just talk a little bit more about, in more detail about what, what you see the longer term trends are. I mean, one of the things that we both sort of alluded to here is that um, there's this long-term trajectory, but there are some headwinds currently in various ways, the market, the interest rates, inflation, although at the time of recording this, I've recently heard some good stuff about maybe that stuff moderating. But what what do you see in the short and the medium and longer term for this industry, for deals, you know, for growth, for capital, that kind of stuff? So I, I, I'm incredibly bullish for the right firms and the right advisors. Look, I, I think if you look at the demographics, I, I said it earlier, one out of every four advisors are getting out of the business, right? And then if we're really honest, probably another one out of four are just sort of are where they are, right? They're not open to change. They're just servicing a business. And so when you think about the, the fact that, that they estimate over the next five years, another 70 trillion coming in and new assets, and then you've got 274 trillion that's going to pass from one generation to the next. I, I think great advisors are going to quadruple. I know that sounds like a really big number, but I think they're going to quadruple their business. And so if I was an advisor, I'd think about becoming the best one I could possibly be. And if I was a firm, I'd think about stacking up as many of those best advisors as I could. And I think if you do that, you're going to see unbelievable growth like we've never seen just because there's going to be fewer advisors and more assets. And that's a simple math problem to me. And I think it's a good one to have. And so probably never been bullish, more bullish than I am today on this industry for those that are client focused, who are accredited, who really do it the right way that fiduciary model that we all love. Yeah. And, and so 100% agree on all that. Let's talk about the short term. Are you seeing any drop in, 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 in opportunities for deal flow for Sanctuary? Have, have the current conditions affected how you're structuring some of your deals, yeah. especially on the investment and, and equity side? Great, great, great questions. I, I think it has changed a little bit, Corey. I, I think there's actually more deals, but I think the quality is not what it was a year ago. I've actually seen a decrease in quality and it felt like to me, 
maybe there were a lot of firms out there that were sort of sort of gliding along the bull market, which I think was a 12-year bull market. And then the turbulence came and they're like, oh, we better get out of here. But but maybe they hadn't properly prepared to, to, to run a process and go through a process, hired somebody like you to do it. And, and, and they just were kind of doing their own thing. And, and, and candidly, there's been a few where we just kind of stepped away, right? Like, nah, this isn't the right fit. But I, I think what has happened, the market has changed a little bit. And, and so what I see is a couple of things. I see multiples actually staying the same, which I think is pretty bullish for the industry. Early on in, in sort of the correction, I thought maybe they were going to come down. And so we bid a little lower on a couple and we, we got whooped. Um, that, we, right? we did not win. So I do not see multiples coming down. But what I do see is I see a little bit better sharing of the risk, right? And so I see a little less cash guaranteed up front coming on the front end and, and a few more earnouts, goalposts along the way. And I think what, what most of us as buyers are saying is like, I'm willing to pay you a full price and I'm actually really would love to pay you a full price. It'd be a great thing for happen for both of us. We just need to structure it in a way that when, when you win, I win, and we win together. And so I think that, that, that maybe, maybe that 80% upfront cash number that, that some people were talking about a year ago, that, that's a little less now. And you're seeing things over two or three years sort of cycle out. Sure. All right. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you want to talk about in terms of sanctuary of the industry or your model? I would just say sometimes, and I think you agree with me on this, I want to make sure everybody understands that there's, there's really for all flavors. And I think it's what actually makes it great. Whether you're an aggregator, an integrator, whatever it is, whether you're a standalone firm with, with $10 billion or $2 billion, there's room for all of us in space. And, and it'll con- there always is, even if you look at in- insurance today, which is one of the most consolidated. Yes, you saw a lot of consolidation, but you still see all flavors of ice cream in that insurance model. And I think that's what you're going to see here. And so I just hope that we all don't get so focused on which is the right one. And we can all focus on just how, how we can, like you do, how we can support independence and how we can make that greater. Because I think having all that choice is a great thing, not a bad thing. And I, and I think one is not right or wrong. It's right or wrong for a certain person or a certain business. And yeah. if we look at it that way, I think there's plenty of room for all of us to grow. Yeah. yeah and yeah, Jim, I agree with that. And in fact, you know, even though I've been a supporter of independence for almost 25 years and I've worked with folks to do that and I even say, and some people see, see this as sacrilegious, but I think the warehouses play a role and there are plenty of advisors who never should leave a warehouse. I mean, they really, yeah. it's the right model for them, right? And it's yep. the right model for certain clients. I mean, I happen to think, obviously, I believe in the independent move model. I think it's, I, I, I think it's better for, for advisors and clients overall, but, but, but on that spectrum, whether it's the IBDs, the, the, the warehouses, fully independent firms, firms like yours, integrators, aggregators, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's, I think it's great. Yeah. And I, I want to echo what you said. It's right. I don't think there's any single right choice, but there is a single, there is a right choice for an individual person or team. And yeah. that's, that's the key. All right. So before I ask you my final question, what's the best place for people to find out more information about Sanctuary? www.sanctuarywealth.com. Please come take a look. <laughs> so take a look, folks. Definitely Sanctuary brings a different option, a different model. And maybe you've heard from some of the other folks on this, on this series, which is a great thing. And if that fits you, they're definitely one of the real quality firms out there that, that Jim and his, his team have built. So definitely consider them. Jim, my final question on the podcast is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom from all people in the world, from oppression to why I've been an entrepreneur for decades and haven't had a boss. So what does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Freedom like you, freedom is everything to me. It, it means getting up every day and being able to chase your dreams, your dreams, not somebody else's dreams. And I think that is so important. And I had a Wonderful career at Merrill Lynch, and it was great. And I think every, everything happens in a certain season to get you ready. But 
man, to get up every day as an entrepreneur and be able to build something and build it the way you want. And, and, and even when it doesn't go right, right, that's that freedom to, to take those choices. It is just, man, it, it's just energizing. And, and, and so to me, freedom is about energy and it's about a really belief and dreaming. And, and the last four years have went by so fast. I'm sure. And I think it's because of that freedom. So I couldn't agree with you more, Corey. I think you're, we, we, we say, we say all the time at Sanctuary, it's about freedom and flexibility. That's why this firm was built to give people choice. And so I love it. Jim Dixon, thank you for being such a great guest on the DealQuest podcast. Thank you very much, Corey. A lot of fun. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.